Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. We had uh, communicated over recent weeks with regards to questions that members of uh, the Facebook group for 10% True had asked. And um, I know you've written some responses, and I'll put those out there, especially regarding unstarts. It's probably easier in the written format you provided. Um, But there was one question that came from Francois, which was about overflying France. Did that ever happen, to your knowledge? It did happen once, and it was the only time I know that SR-71 really got lost for for a few minutes. And you're going 2,000 miles an hour or so, and, uh, you know, two, two, two minutes at that, you get, go uh, one mile every second and a half, so you can get uh, get off uh, track pretty quickly. I have a, I wrote a little uh, blurb on that, and I'll make sure that everything is... Uh, this happened uh, flying out of debt for Mildenhall, and, uh, it was uh, a flight uh, to the Baltic Sea, and then uh, I think they also did uh, a um, mission around uh, West Germany to photograph the boundary between uh, West and East Germany when, the, when Germany was divided. So going back, they had a, a, nav- a, a navigational failure where they, for a while, they couldn't tell where they were. So. They started off uh, on a heading, and you, know, you only have to be off a few degrees to, you know, after five minutes to be really in some place where you have no idea you are. But they were heading for England, and uh, they had to time their descent, you know, so that they wouldn't come down in the middle of uh, Lagosse Airport or something like that. But they wandered over into France, so they were overflying France. They were on the radio, they were talking to the controller, and uh, the, the uh, at one time, the controller said to them, uh, this is a quote, and this is what I've heard the pilot say, Monsieur, you were over France. <laughs> and so they, um, there was a, a word that they sent uh, some fighters up to intercept them. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but they um, gave them vectors and, and uh, told them when to descent to go to England. It was also overcast, so that they couldn't see the land. They couldn't see where the English Channel was for so anyway, they came down, and once they got the British controllers, of course, everything was fine, and they, they landed. And so there wasn't much to it, but it, did, uh, it, it didn't uh, have any repercussions, as far as I know, on the American side. I don't know what the French thought about it, but they, they were probably upset. But anyway, they, they had to understand. They're, they're, they're NATO allies. They, they, they should be on our side. 
what was the um, the procedure then as a front seater if you did lose communication with your back seater and you lost the nav gear? Well, there was no written procedure. Uh, it's something that obviously you have to know where you are when you lose your nav system and you have to know in what direction to fly. Our, if you if you don't, you know, look around, the, the, the first initial reaction, of course, when something like that happens is to look around for circuit breakers and things like that, which will divert one's attention away from flying the airplane. Well, as we all know, that the, the first responsibility of the pilot is to fly the airplane. Uh, SR-71 is very complicated and, and uh, tricky, and if you lost your nav system, maybe something else caused it. So you have other systems to check, but all that time you have to you have to fly your flight plan. Um, if you get off, and I've done this before I, on training missions, I have hand flown uh, the uh, route without the steering bar, and you know, just to see how hard it is. And it's hard to do that, as you get off one or two degrees from your heading, which is not not a hard thing to do, and you're you're going to be zipping away from your pre-planned uh, uh, flight path fairly quickly. So I just I wanted to do that just to see what it was like. Well, I know what it's like. That's why I said that that's probably the worst emergency other than something catastrophic that would cause the airplane to crash that you think of. And of course, there were areas like heading for the Soviet Union, for instance, where you, you better make your turn before certainly not after the uh, the time that you're supposed to or, or you might overfly the Soviet Union. None of that ever happened. But that was, if you can think about that, you got overcast sky and you don't have any nav equipment, you're going 2,000 miles an hour. Uh, you just have to know where to go. And, and uh, you really want, want to land as soon as you can. So knowing where your alternates are. But we did not have a uh, emergency uh, procedure that said if you lose nav, this is the things you do because we all knew what we had to do and then navigate the airplane and figure out why you just lost your nav system. I think there was a question from, and I know that this was another one that you went away and actually researched before you came back to it, but about fuel flow. Um, so I think Ian Bradford had asked what your fuel flow numbers were at different points in the in the sortie. The fuel flow at mill power, 100% without afterburner on the ground, is essentially the same fuel flow that you have up at Mach 3.2. Obviously, the gas mileage is a little bit better if you're going 3.2. Anyway, I, I have this some of these uh, that I'll just read off here real quick. The fuel flow on the ground is about 46 to 6,300 uh, pounds per hour per engine. Uh, the flight manual says that from takeoff to brake release, uh, which is 400 knots, you burn about 1,300 pounds, and it takes, I know, about 20 to 30 seconds. Um, there's a video on my uh, YouTube channel of uh, a heavyweight takeoff, and the heavyweight takeoff from the time that the video starts, which is the rotation speed, which the airplane had already been accelerating for about 10 minutes, it took about another 12 minutes or so to get up to climb speed. Just time it on on the on the video. Well, that was an airplane that was taking off with the full fuel load, 80,000 pounds of fuel. Normally, we'd take off with about half that, that 40,000. 
Um, subsonic crews, um, 25,000 feet going to the tanker, around 10,000 pounds per hour per engine, with Mach 0.8 uh, and about 90,000 pounds of gross weight. That was a normal thing we do is, is take off and immediately 20 minutes later uh, go uh, rendezvous with the tanker. After refueling with a full load of uh, 80,000 pounds or 140,000 pounds gross weight, uh, to accelerate to Mach 3, average fuel flow in the climb is about uh, 39,000 pounds per hour per engine. Uh, we would level off with around 54,000 pounds. So you go from 80,000 to 54,000, and that's what the acceleration to Mach 3 would take you. Um, on our rocket rides, we could go from brake release to Mach 3 in about 13 minutes. Uh, with a full fuel load, it would take about 20 minutes. Um, Fuel flow at supersonic cruise with uh, both engines and afterburner. It varied greatly between uh, gross weight and speed. Uh, to conserve fuel, we almost always flew uh, max range. We didn't try to fly at max altitude or anything like that. Uh, and we also put the center of gravity as far aft as we could, 25% of uh, mean aerodynamic cord was the, was the limit. It also was the minimum drag limit. Um, so the the uh, things that would determine what altitude we'd fly would be uh, outside air temperature, gross weight, center of gravity, and load factor, what, uh, what bank angle you're holding. Uh, outside air temperature um, and outside air temperature. The throttle setting was hardly ever more than a half of uh, the range between uh, male power and the max afterburner. So we were never, ever power limited at that. So when people ask what the maximum speed of the airplane is, I don't know because no one has ever put the throttles up to max afterburner and just let it go. Foolish indeed. <laughs> Fuel flow at supersonic cruise, uh, with, uh, for any uh, cruise at optimum altitude, the uh, SR-71, I say, was never power limited. Fuel flow at Mach 2.4, which generally was the slowest uh, that we would cruise, uh, ranged from 22,000 pounds per hour heavy to 12,000 pounds per hour uh, per engine uh, lightweight. At Mach 3, it's, uh, again, 22,000 pounds uh, heavy and about 15,000 light. And at Mach 3.2, it was about... Uh, 22,000 to 14,000. So it, it, the, it looks like that the, um, the fuel flow is, is almost the same for all, all three of those. But at Mach 3.2, of course, you're getting better gas mileage because you're going faster. There was a question about um, from Francois also about Brian Schull. Well, let, let, me, let me talk about that. Um, as crew members, we were a very tight-knit group, and we depended on each other. And when I'm talking to my civilian friends, uh, they ask me a question about that. And I say, well, what would it be like if you were a stockbroker, and the, and the stockbroker to your left made a mistake, and because of that, you died? You know, it's, well, that, who would want to work in an establishment like that? Well, that's the way it is with pilots. Uh, especially military pilots, uh, where we depended on each other. Uh, if I didn't do my job properly, uh, I, could, I could really hurt the next guy. And that could be anything from abusing my airplane, flying um, the airplane out of limits, 
uh, say in the SR-71, flying it uh, faster or putting on more than 427 degrees uh, compressor in the temperature, that would be over-temping. If I over-temped it for three minutes and I, and I didn't write it up, then I've done something terrible. So we depended on each other to tell the truth and uh, our skills and formation flying. We would chase uh, each other, uh, T-38 chasing the, the SR-71 because the visibility of the SR-71 was not nearly as good as it was having T-38. So we would often have a T-38 flying right behind the SR. And uh, especially during flight test, we, we, we did that just in case something fell off the airplane or if the uh, chase airplane could see the another airplane, make sure we don't hit. So I never had any problem with any of my fellow crew members or maintenance people or the tanker crews or anything. We all, uh, when we were at TDY, we lived in the same building. And we uh, socialized with each other. I knew the crew chiefs uh, by name uh, and it was a well well knit group and so i the question about brian shull was i think she asked he said she had read uh, any time that brian's name came up it would be associated with a negative response from a lot of people and i i i don't think i've ever seen a crew member uh, participate in that but i have seen others and this is what I have to say about it. I, I wanted to read this because I, I wrote it and it, it's sincere and I didn't want to miss anything. Okay, Brian Shull was a combat pilot in Vietnam. He was shot down. He crash landed in the jungle within enemy territory. He was badly burned throughout his body and he was rescued by the United States Air Force Special Operations Pararescue Team. It's a pretty dramatic story. He was airlifted to a military hospital in Okinawa, and he fought for his life for, uh, for many months. Uh, the doctors first thought that he would die, uh, but he gradually, after medical operations, he regained his health. He underwent many months of rehabilitation, physical therapy, and after much uh, personal determination and, and work on his part, he regained military flying status. Subsequently, he became a fighter pilot in the A-7 and uh, was a demonstration pilot in the A-10. I first heard about Brian Shull when I read an article about him. He was featured in an article in the uh, Air Force Airman magazine. And uh, I, I, along with a lot of other people, were very impressed with his story. Sometime later, I was on the, the board of officers who were uh, assessing the applications of pilots to fly the SR-71, and his application was included. Everything in his application was excellent, and his personal story was uh, was inspiring. We recommended, as a board, we recommended that he be interviewed, and the wing commander agreed. When he came out to Beale for his interview, I was the SR-71 instructor pilot who gave who evaluated him in the simulator. That was part of it. It was a four-hour simulator ordeal that we put him through. Uh, he wrote of that experience in his uh, first book on the SR called Sled Driver. Um, he, he wrote specifically about his experience uh, being evaluated in the simulator. After he was accepted, I was one of his instructor pilots while he was in the initial training for the SR-71. I found him to be uh, very talented and capable. And I left for my uh, next military assignment about the time that he 
checked out in the airplane the time that he flew his first flight. I was already at uh, Edwards, uh, flying out of Palmdale. So uh, when he was flying the SR, I certainly maintained contact with the squadron and him. But I was not in the in the squadron, and I was not associated with. I was not assigned to Strategic Air Command at the time. I see Brian once a year now, uh, as he gives a presentation at the Hiller Aviation Museum, which is about 10 or 15 miles from where I live. I've always maintained good relations with him, and I consider him my friend. Um, any ugly remarks about Brian uh, is the responsibility of those writing those remarks and, and to know others. Uh, he's a very talented speaker, he's a talented writer and photographer. Uh, you've probably seen his, his, uh, his uh, photography books. His books are superior. Now, as far as uh, people saying bad things about him, um, I, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't uh, engage in kind of uh, in any kind of um, gossip or anything about that. And I, I wish uh, other people wouldn't. I think, uh, and I, I don't know anything other than that. And I don't really care to know anything other than that. But I, I wish people would stop doing that. Next question then was, well, Jan, um, our, our, our sort of pretty much, I think the only female who um, knows what 10% true is or, or uh, comes and looks at any of our content. Hi, Jan. Um, she asked a range of questions. So she asked, uh, her first question was about cabin pressure, uh, cruise altitudes above 73,000 feet. What's the, what's the long and short then on, on how you manage the cabin pressure in the airplane? Yeah, the cabin pressure, uh, unlike any other airplane, uh, was, was fairly high. Uh, we would fly with the cabin pressure at 26,000 feet. We had the capability, we had a switch that we could uh, pressurize it to 10,000 if, if we wanted to or needed to. But uh, the uh, fly manual said, uh, please don't do that because you're, you're going to take away cooling air from the uh, bays from where the cameras are uh, or, the, or the radar. And we had um, indications. We had uh, we had meters that told us what the, those uh, those temperatures were. The maximum temperature was 160 degrees, as I recall, Fahrenheit, in uh, in those bays. And so it was pretty important to keep that to keep that uh, temperature down. So I always flew with the with the at 26,000. Um, it's that altitude is higher than the cruise altitude of any other airplane. There's a, a, a fighter airplane uh, flying at 45,000 feet is pressurized lower than 26,000. So we are in an area where if we open our visor, God forbid, if you open your visor when you're up at high altitude, um, you could uh, get hypoxic just by being in the cockpit, whereas in other airplanes you, you might not. So you had to be careful of that. Um, the, the, she also asked what the pressure, the pressure at sea level is 14.7 PSI pounds per square inch. At 26, it's uh, about uh, 5.22 PSI, that's the pressure inside the cockpit. And then the pressure at 10,000 feet, if we went to that, is 10.11 PSI. And I think that she asked what altitude. We farm, normally flew at Mach 3, and uh, our Mach 2.4 through Mach 
3.2. Those those were our uh, choices, essentially. And the altitude would be uh, level off, initial level off at about 73,000 feet, and then uh, we might cruise climb to 83,000 feet. Uh, she asked about airframe stability, too, I think. Mm. Like that. Yeah, uh, were, were you nervous about it? Yeah, we, we were not nervous about air, airplane stability. We were careful to fly the airplane as precisely as, as possible. Uh, at our cruise speed, I think I, I mentioned before, at Mach 3, a one-degree deviation from your pitch would give you 3,000-foot-per-minute rate of climb or descent. And uh, people who fly airplanes know that you don't want to do, do this a lot. And, and the SR-71 was not a, a high-G airplane. Uh, if you pulled more than two, two-and-a-half Gs, then you're getting in the danger area. That's lightweight. Um, it just it, it required constant attention to do that. Uh, almost 100% of our flights were, uh, I say, between Mach 2.4 and Mach 3.2. Our best fuel consumption range was at Mach 3.2. That was the point design. The end stopped scheduling at that point, so any, any uh, mock higher than that. And our, the highest published uh, mock that we were supposed to go that's in the flight manual was Mach 3.3. Uh, that's about it. Normally, oh, I, the, sometimes we would have to uh, slow down to Mach 2.4 just to stay in the area. And this was particularly true in, uh, around Western Germany so we didn't slop over in someone else's country or in the Baltic because it was fairly narrow for us to operate. What about the question from Ian Bradford about reconnaissance flights from Mildenhall? I think you... Yeah, that, uh, that's a good good question, but it's, it's so uh, all-encompassing. Uh, I would direct him to uh, Paul Crickmore's book, this one. Yeah, it's a great book. Yeah, that's that's his, his latest, and it's uh, it's great. He he uh, devotes about eighty three pages to um, operations out of Mildenhall. Mildenhall, about nineteen seventy six, is uh, when we uh, started operating out of Mildenhall, and then uh, became uh, an operational base where we were there all the time to. Um, it was about 1983, I think. Um, anyway, we would fly uh, missions uh, for the against the Soviet Union and um, the Eastern uh, Pack, uh, uh, Poland, places like that, and then the Middle East. Middle East would uh, everything from the eastern border there, uh, and also the Red Sea. So those were the places that we would uh, operate. We did very few Middle East uh, flights. Most of them were up around Murmansk or in the Baltic. So one of the things that uh, there was a comment on on the YouTube channel uh, for the the interview. I can't remember which one, it, which interview it was. It must have been the, the third one um, where we talked about operational missions. Was your sort of very casual and laid back uh, response to threats and the risk of being intercepted and so on. And and Francois had asked. Um, I think specifically about that, whether, um, you know, there, there really was a, a, a credible threat to you. Um, and again, you, you've written a, a solid answer to that. On every operational mission, we were briefed on, uh, on threats, potential threats, either uh, surface-to-air missiles, we call them SAMs, um, or uh, 
potential in, enemy interceptors. There were more than once that I was told, uh, watch out for interceptors. Well, okay. It was, no, nothing was ever said about what we do about it. Um, but he said, if you see contrails, that's probably what it was. I, I, I was more concerned about the later version of the surface-to-air missile, the SA-5. The SA-5 could reach Mach 6 or more. I've heard it, heard it could go faster. So the time from uh, launch to uh, getting up to 80,000 feet would, would be pretty short. Now, our defense uh, maneuver, if we were, we had, uh, we had several ways to know whether an enemy launched a missile. We were briefed on that anyway. And um, one was internal, that we could, we could sense their, their, uh, their launch. How? I don't know. That's sure classified. But uh, we, would, we would know, and, and we would immediately go into a, a, a turn, we would accelerate, and we would climb and jam. So those, those four items. And the jamming is electronic. Uh, any, uh, any threat that they're, they're going to hit us with would probably be in front of us. And that's where the jamming was. And we've got a 30-degree cone in front. Because if they if we are already over the site and they launch a missile, I think we could pretty easily avoid that. But in front, and the worst thing would be to go in front and explode in front of your flight path because these uh, the shrapnel and everything. If you're going going this, <laughs> the the speed of a uh, muzzle velocity of a rifle, which we were, and you hit anything, it's gonna it's gonna be catastrophic. So that was really kind of my worry. It's not. That they would hit our airplane necessarily. That would be very difficult to do. But to uh, to explode in front of our flight path. So we would turn, climb, accelerate, and jam. Um, concerning the interceptor activity, I'll give you some detail about that. We had experience in the United States uh, flying against uh, our own interceptors, Air Force and Navy. And always, I don't know of an exception, without knowing in advance our course, speed, and altitude, they could not reasonably be in position to fire simulated uh, anti-aircraft missiles successfully. So we were kind of leaning on that, that, uh, that uh, data. We believe that without actual advanced knowledge of our flight path, which they could find through spies, I suppose, the probability of a successful intercept was low. There was no procedure or requirement for us to identify or monitor poten potential interceptors. Uh, there, there were for, for SAM missiles, but not interceptors. In flight, so almost all of the crew's attention was directed to our normal duties during uh, any, uh, any reconnaissance mission. Um, often we would see contrails, which uh, we thought to be fighter aircraft practicing a zoom maneuver, because there, there's no, no um, one of their fighters that could uh, maneuver at 80,000 feet. They just couldn't do it. So if they were going to get a shot at us, they'd have to do a zoom maneuver and fire during some, some period there to reach our altitude. But I, I never saw an air, I, I never personally saw an airplane. I saw contrails, but I never got close enough to them. They never got close enough to me for, to identify. Um, I did not consider the aircraft, Soviet uh, aircraft, to be a reliable threat. Our flying certainly was not hazard free because there's always that lucky shot, of course. But in general, um, when I was in a denied area, I was concentrating on flying the airplane and, and not concerned about the interceptors. 
And we thought that even with a lucky intercept, which would be very difficult, our, our speed and altitude, uh, at our speed and altitude, we were briefed that their missile capability and fusing had a low chance of, uh, of success. In any case, we were expected to fly our, our mission as directed, uh, no matter what the perceived threats might be, and, and, and we did. We did that uh, faithfully. I know there have been a lot written about uh, Soviet pilots uh, bragging, if you will, that they could shoot down an SR-71. Well, i got a few words to say about that, but... <laughs> Boy, brag, guys. <laughs> You never did it. <laughs> and Kevin Ronaldson asked whether or not, I mean, it's the uh, sort of uh, $64 million question, isn't it? Was was the aeroplane retired too soon? Well, I wrote some answers to that, and it could be, and first of all, the, the short answer is I don't know, because I certainly wasn't in a, in a position to make that decision. But here are some reasons why it was grounded, or where I think it was grounded. One was the advent of uh, modern and plentiful reconnaissance satellites. Um, it was a, I remember when I was flying the SR that sometimes we would have to close hangars because the Soviet satellites would be flying over, and I'm sure that they had a, had, had a similar thing. I don't know. I have no idea what the the reconnaissance satellites are like nowadays, but if I were a betting man, I would say we probably have 24-hour coverage on the targets that we really need. So if you have 24-hour uh, coverage, one uh, advantage to the SR-71 is that we could sneak up on them, assuming that they didn't know when we were taking off and where we were going, and I, I pray to God that they didn't, but um, we, we, could, uh, we could be there quickly and start taking pictures before they would have time to hide anything. Uh, but nowadays, it's probably completely different. Uh, the SR-71 never had a real-time reconnaissance uh, capability where it could take pictures and send the pictures directly uh, to the interested parties. Um, the engineers were working on that when the uh, program terminated. And when I was at, uh, at Edwards in Palmville uh, as a test pilot there, I, I, we were working on that problem. And I think they were very close to, uh, to solving that problem. Um, but the pictures that we took were film type. We actually had to develop them, unlike the digital pictures that I'm sure that they exist today. So the cameras were large, heavy, and delicate, and operating the film and developing it was a long, time-consuming process. Um, we also flew in the most dangerous flight environment of any uh, aircraft. And uh, to maintain readiness for the uh, maintenance crews, the tanker crews, and the SR crews, we had to fly quite often. So, so we, we did fly quite often. At times, we had to divert to other fields uh, if we had an emergency. And um, no other field had equipment to uh, service the SR-71. I mean, nothing. So we had to truck in everything that was needed to fix the airplane. That was time-consuming. That was, that was very uh, expensive. Uh, there was always the chance an SR-71 flying at 2,000 or 2,000 plus miles an hour could uh, inadvertently uh, overfly the Soviet Union or China, two, two of the uh, countries that we never overflew. And if you violate the airspace, of course, they're going to come after you. And it would be an international incident and it would be embarrassing to uh, the president and everybody. So that, that was always a consideration when people were involved in reconnaissance. Uh, 
command reconnaissance. There was also a chance that um, one of us might be captured. And so we had uh, airplanes, uh, we had engines that uh, explode at various times, and if one exploded and you had to bail out, you were over the Barents or you over over Murmansk, you would probably be captured. And then if we were captured, we'd be subject to intense pressure, imprisoned, tortured, executed. Uh, and in any case, the United States, to get us back, would have to would have to give something. So that that's not good. And it, it would be very bad publicity. <laughs> Um, strategic strategic reconnaissance as important as I believe it, it is and was uh, is not the main uh, mission of the uh, of the U.S. military. Uh, to put it in uh, common terms, it's bombs on target, which is the mission of the military and the Air Force. So anything that uh, any money that's spent that was not bombs on target uh, was always up to uh, up to review. The SR-71 is also very expensive to operate. Uh, I'm not sure anyone with any absolute certainty can say how much it cost, but it certainly was the most expensive airplane uh, 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 expense per airplane of any squadron in the, in the Air Force. There are only 10, uh, 10 of us air crew uh, on duty at any one time. And so it just got, a, and of course, being the fastest and highest flying, it had a lot of mystique. It just got a lot of, lot of, lot of attention, uh, especially when other programs needed needed money. I've heard that the cost per hour to fly the SR was is around fifty thousand dollars. That seems low to me, as much uh, that they have to put into it. But fifty thousand, it could be more. The decision to terminate was made rather suddenly by the Secretary of Defense, and was the first. Uh, First person, and then the Air Force Chief of Staff with the concurrence of the senior staff, and then of course Congress had to vote for it. Um, I could give you one little trivia thing: is that in the in the first and only line item video, uh, the SR-71 was was the program that they terminated the first line item veto, which after that was ruled unconstitutional. There was another question that came through it relates then to your final point around sort of return on investment or, you know, whatever uh, description you want to give to the nation of the United States getting its money's worth from the SR program. Uh, were there ever any attempts to measure then um, the value of the program? Well, not not at my level. Um, one of our most important missions was the Murmansk mission, and that was that was flown uh, as part of the Navy's responsibility. And uh, besides, you know, counting the number of submarines and everything uh, uh, that might be at Murmansk, as it was a, a port, um, we wanted to know where the nuclear missiles were, or the the the, the Navy's the Navy was tasked with knowing where they were and and what was on board and uh, and. I'm sure that our sorties there could answer that information for them. So the when the program was terminated, I've heard, and I was not any part of that, I wasn't even in the military at the time, that the Navy really wanted to keep the airplane just, just for that mission. Uh, during the first uh, Iraq war, uh, General Schwarzkopf asked for the SR-71 to be uh, re, uh, re, regenerated because he wanted information over territories that were not, uh, that, that over which we did not have uh, control. 
And that's, a, that's a, a, another thing about the SR is that we could fly over what they call denied territory, territory where they, uh, where they had uh, surface-to-air missiles, where the U-2 demonstrated a couple of times, couldn't do that. You know, the, the, the U-2 is an excellent uh, high-altitude uh, antenna, and it could also see in, in, inside the denied area, but you'd never want to fly the U-2 over a SAM missile site, not anymore. So yes, I think we had a we did a good job.